Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, today's podcast is brought to you by Impact Summit. If you are a dog trainer, a dog walker, or a daycare owner who wants to help more dog owners and make more money with your amazing dog training skills, then you should join me in attending Dom Hodgson's next Pet Business Bootcamp Success Summit, Impact 2019, which is happening on April the 5th in Sunderland. I was a member of Dom's Pet Business Inner Circle and in 2017, I attended his inaugural Pet Business Bootcamp. So I can state without question that his marketing methods are effective and they will help you to make more money. By listening to Dom's advice, I personally increased my training fees by 300%. Dom has twice been a guest on this podcast and earlier this year, direct response marketing strategist Dan Kennedy called Dom Europe's number one business coach of dog trainers, professional dog walkers, and pet sitters. So if you are struggling to stand out from the ever-growing competition and you are tired of wasting time messing around on social media, then you should come to Impact 2019, where you can finally learn the proven effective marketing techniques that will help you take your pet business to the next level. Go to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash impact to grab your ticket now. And if you get your ticket soon, then you will also qualify for over £500 of bonuses. I also want to give a shout out to my good friend, John McGuigan. John is bringing some of the best dog trainers from around the world to the UK to talk and give workshops. The next event is a two-day workshop covering motivation, focus, and proofing for distraction by Hannah Brannigan, the host of the Drinking from the Toilet podcast. So to get tickets for that, go to www.glasgowdogtrainer.co.uk. Today, I'm talking to Kay Lawrence. Kay has been involved in training, breeding, and rearing dogs for over 40 years. She has spoken at Clicker Expo for 12 years and has spoken at lots of different conferences, actually. She's competed at Crufts in Obedience and Heel Work to Music. She is also the author of several books, including Tug More, Learn More, Clicker Training, The Perfect Foundation, Teaching with Reinforcement, Learning Games, and Clicker Dances with Dogs. So, let's get into it. Uh, reading your blog today and just kind of catching up on things and there's so much that I'd love to talk to you about well I'm impressed by research always <laughs> um, well let me t- tell me if this is true I-, I can't remember who told me this it might have been Claire because I know we both kind of have a mutual friend in uh, Claire Russell and yep. um, someone told me that um, at your workshops you're quite because you're I don't, know, I don't know how to put this. You're quite um, a bit of a stickler for making sure people are doing everything right, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to clicker training. And I can understand why, because, you know, there's someone else learning there, isn't there? And if people don't mm-hmm. turn up with the mechanics, the timing and all that kind of stuff, then you're not opposed to having them just practice the timing in a corner on their own. <laughs> but this is from experience. So... Um... If I was teaching somebody, somebody comes to me and they want to learn all about clicker training, that's probably a two-year program. Uh, 
and you have to learn things bit by bit. You can't just learn the whole lot in one go. So then I have to make a decision as what's the most important thing for them to learn, and that is colored by what would be the hardest thing for change if they don't learn how to do that correctly now. So number one, take the clicker off them. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because otherwise, you know, people are fixing these dogs into behaviors that are a nightmare to change further down the road. So no, 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 let's just work on what you need to work on for now. And let's screw up as little as possible. Because when you come back in six months time, you're going to blame me for not teaching you how to do ABC. Mm, that's interesting. And I think definitely when you start off with clicker training, there are some things that are like universally people get wrong isn't there like it takes a while to get timing down for sure that's one of the big ones i see you know if you, even if if you ever try and do clicker training with an owner uh i'm not sure i'd recommend it but, <laughs> if you try. but timing you know timing like motor skills i think we're 20 years on now from when the clickers landed over here you know we had the don't shoot the dog early 90s videos 96, 97, internet about 98. But really, you couldn't buy clickers unless you sent to the States for them until the late 90s. But we talked about it a lot on the internet. There were terms that were inherited. And I think now, 20 years later, we look at those terms and go, eh, it's not quite good enough. So timing or good timing is an outcome of exceptional observation skills and your ability to anticipate that the behavior you're seeking is likely to happen. So um, good timing looks good because that person has an eye to recognize this dog is about to sit. I can see the way it's shuffling its back feet. It's raising its tail. I know it's going to sit. Bang, there we go. So when you're teaching someone who's brand new at dog training, it's not about the clicker. It's about them recognizing, I think this dog's going to jump up. Oh, yes, there he did. How... What would you, with your experience, style, be able to recognise a dog does just before it jumps up? Uh, the, the the weight shift. That's quite an yep. obvious one, isn't it? And it'll look you straight in the eye if it's going to jump yeah, towards absolutely. your face. Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of these... So that's an interesting thing. Point. Well, there's a couple of interesting points you make there, Kay. Because I sometimes find myself struggling to explain body language to people. Because I guess a lot of this is processed for experience... And a lot of the time, I'm not... Maybe I don't practice explaining body language to people, but I can see things happening. And they, and I often get people ask me, well, how did you know the dog was about to do that? And it's, it's almost an unconscious thing now because you just spend enough time with dogs and you just see those things happen. But maybe you aren't consciously mm. looking mm. for a weight shift or uh, the look in the eyes. Yeah. But it's just kind of processed unconsciously. But, you know, they say, you know, if there's something like... Um an accident or um, a criminal event where they need observers to say what they saw. People are not trained at observing what they see, but people can be trained to observe what they see. So, um, you know, if we wanted to teach or you're thinking about teaching people good observation skills, have a look at some of the techniques they use for training police officers. You know, what color were the dog's eyes? What was he looking at when he did that? Um, I usually set an exercise for one of the online courses is for seven days, they have to write down every single occasion when the dog sat. You know, what was the function of the behavior? Did the dog sit forwards or backwards? What was it looking at when it sat? What was its tail doing? What was it doing before it sat? And what did it doing after it sat? <gasps> and they learn a lot about sitting. <laughs> but then by watching the dogs doing this, just that behavior, when they come back a week later, you know, even to puppy class, their eyes are already starting to look for things that are happening. 
Oh, he sat. What was he doing? What made him sit? And what did he do next? Oh, he scratched his ear. Yes, now I know why he sat. So it's not about teaching them how to use a clicker. It's about teaching the skills to be able to use a clicker. Yeah, that's interesting because I had never really thought about what you just said in terms of we think about timing so much as if we have to rush to the click. But a lot of the times it's just that we see what's about to happen. And that's why our timing Mm -hmm. improves. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen dogs trained with consistently poor timing. This lady always clicked about three seconds after the event. But her dog worked it out because she was consistently three seconds late <laughs> so the dog my god bless it that was a that was a clever dog <laughs> we had to, you know we had to see it to believe it the dog would sit one two three click treat yep and then she'd ask the dog to you know put an object down the dog would do some shaping he'd put his foot on it click yes, and it's like oh, this dog was great <laughs> well but nobody else could shake with it though it's interesting yeah that's a good point um it's interesting because <laughs> Oftentimes, one one of the main criticisms that comes up about certain techniques, like, for example, shaping or, like, bat and all of these kind of things, are they require the person that's training to have a high level of understanding of dog body language in order to make it successful. So are you saying that with, say, ordinary dog owners, I know you work a lot with trainers, but you are teaching them how to understand body language or do you just tend to choose methods that tend to be more dog owner friendly i i don't think well again you put a whole bunch of stuff in there you can't criticize a technique a technique is a technique it's the application of the technique that would fail so if the technique is limited to people with certain skills that's not the fault of the technique it's just that we're trying to apply it to situations that the skill's not there so um you know, trying to get an 11-year-old to drive a car doesn't have the skills. Yep. Um, it doesn't fault either the 11-year-old or the driving of the car. It's just a mismatch of te- technique to capability. And ordinary dog folk are just as intelligent <laughs> as extraordinary dog folk. In fact, sometimes at the expo, they ask us, what extraordinary training have we seen in the last year? And I've seen more extraordinary training coming off ordinary dog folk than the people that are supposed to know what they're doing you know um people that will dedicate hours a day to a dog that is complex going to make life hard work for them they're willing to learn and they're just as bright you know the demographics of ordinary dog folk are just the same as dog trainers um you know it's not a it's not a different fish it's the same fish it's the same same skills we're trying to teach them, whether they have ambitions just to be able to walk down the street with the dog or ambitions to go and run in competitions. It's the same things. They're people trying to learn. Yeah, one of the... Time might be limited. One of the, it, What you said there about people, uh, ordinary people often achieving things that are more impressive rings a bell as well because sometimes, especially in sports... Uh, in the sports world, you see people that have trained amazing behaviors with their dogs, but the explanation and the and the way that they describe getting there just makes absolutely no sense at all. And it's like, I, I think at some point, the ability to practice and the ability to, and the time that's put in almost outweighs the understanding and the uh, mm. level of competence of someone. I mean... A lot of the people that will come for help 
don't intend to put in 300 hours to train a dog. They're, you're lucky if they're going to put in three. The people that do want to train a dog to a very high level will not even blanch at putting 300 hours in. So often it's a question of not skills. It's a question of available time and resources and the motivation to do it. But then I think we have to learn the protocols, the techniques as well as we can. And then it's our job to be able to adapt them to that person's lifestyle. So this person's not going to train the dogs. You know, I train, if I'm lucky, 15 minutes for a dog a day. Woo. Most people can do that. So we call it kettle training. Every time you put the kettle on to have a cup of tea, do some training with the dog. Every time you put your coat on, just do two minutes with the dog. So you integrate it into their life, not make it something super special that they have to set aside and once you start to set up exercises that are integrated into life like not jumping up and banging the door every time they want to go to the garden the dog's getting trained far more than that specialist dog that needs special equipment and have to go down to the training room or i've got to go to the field to do this that and the other because it's part of their everyday interaction with their dogs and that's where we want to take them am i right in thinking you work with a lot of people that are kind of trainers or people that are very interested in training that are wanting to improve their skills because i was wondering if you see that as well in those because i you know sometimes you know you go down a youtube rabbit hole or whatever and you come across someone that has trained something amazing with their dog and like i said you know you kind of you listen to the explanation and there doesn't seem to be much understanding of of what they've done but it's the commitment that's the commitment yeah. <laughs> commitment. Yeah. That's i mean even it. in you know i've competed at top level in various sports uh-huh. The people at the top level were not the greatest trainers, but they were the trainers that had the greatest determination to do as many hours as possible to train the dogs. So that was about hours of training, not necessarily skills of training. That's interesting because that, does that kind of conflict with this kind of point that um, some small sessions are better and that you don't have to do these long hours of training to get the results that you want? It depends what you're trying to learn. Um, You know, many of the sports are trainers that are successful are coached to be successful, but they didn't learn how to do it in the first place. They follow their coach's instruction and they become successful. Then when you ask them to change dogs or train a dog that doesn't fit the recipe that they've been trained on and they are absolutely floundering. So, this, you know, often, you know, if I run workshops for supposedly, we call them geek workshops, and I say to them, well, what do you understand by this behavior? Premac being one of the real. <laughs> <laughs> sends me running out the room when they talk about premacking. I go, where do you hear this rubbish? Who told you that? How can you think that's right? Well, that's what we understood it to be. I said, did you actually go and research this? No. Okay. So you've been given some misinformation. Oh, right. Oh, okay. You know. So it, it, often they're just tossing words out there because it might sound good to use it. But the diligence to actually check what it is, find out whether what they're hearing is authentically correct. Not there. It's just not there. They're just, just going to look for maybe the quickest route to get to where they want to go. Well, pre-Mac is one that even you know professional dog trainers get really confused about because I think that there's a lot of bad information out there. And, and really, you can almost ascribe pre-mac to anything you want to ascribe pre-mac you know yeah it's of uh, very little use at all in my opinion <laughs> yeah it's like you know we win if you don't want to eat broccoli how do we change the broccoli to make it more appealing we don't say you've got to eat your broccoli because unless you eat your broccoli you're not going to get your dessert well then i won't eat my broccoli it's fine but if you cover the broccoli in butter or you maybe make a cheese sauce to go over it i would enjoy it so change the way we cook 
don't just you know say you've got to do this because I want that instead. And that's a lot of people's limited understanding of pre-Mac. The second one then is, oh, well, I'm going to do pre-Macking, so I'm going to use an activity. Well, you know, then you look at the time period that pre-Mac's research was happening in, and this is an important part of looking at any research. Um, most of the animals that were being fed there were pellets that were dropped into a bowl, so nobody thought about playing tug with a rat or tickling a rat. So there was no real interest in using anything else except food as a reinforcer. So he looked at doing different aspects of activities as reinforcers to change and shape behavior. But that, to us, is commonplace now, so I, I don't think there's any particular benefit for bringing that word in. I, I don't see what the benefit no, is. No, oftentimes it just adds confusion. And, and um, even in Premax, even in Premax study, like you said, there was there was food being used. Like I was reading about one of his studies on um, children that played pinball or preferred mm -hmm. to play pinball than eat uh, sweets, sweets or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you know it, they did it both ways, you know. That, yeah, yeah. And and but if you said to someone, you know, but both events were reinforcing. It wasn't about broccoli being disgusting mm. followed by custard being very nice. Both events were reinforcing to a degree, and they managed to change their preferences. But they wanted both those events. Yeah, to me, it's just kind of become like dog trainer speak, hasn't it? Because you wouldn't. Mm. It's become its own mm. language in dog training because mm. you yeah, wouldn't yeah, call it premac. Yeah if you were using food rewards no. it's just like but if you look at the science then it would make just as much sense so it's, it's a weird one yeah 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 it's uh i think it's one of these things where people you know like to sound professional by using jargon yes but often it doesn't help and that jargon is often completely inaccurate because they've just picked it up from somebody else who didn't use it well well here's another rabbit hole that i've saw on your um on your blog and i was wondering about your thoughts on was um targeting versus luring because in the dog trainer world we love to use food luring but mm -hmm. again which is fine which is fine and i think that as dog trainers we become very good at it right because we become very mm -hmm. good at fading out food because we're doing it all of the time but i was wondering because with targeting of course one of the uh, advantages is you are starting with a stimulus that isn't a salient. You don't have to... It's not as <laughs> difficult to fade out a target as it would be to tar uh, fade out food. So, in a way, you're setting yourself up for it yeah, taking a yeah. little longer. You wouldn't have a versus on any of those. I mean, I use targets which contain food. Okay. <laughs> so, to me, it's more about how you use the lure... I mean, I'm a great advocate of luring. I think it's it's dogs are designed to lure. Everybody's responding to luring. It's just called marketing. You know, we're lured all the time on Facebook with these freaking adverts that are toddling up and down the side. Um, and targeting is just a learned behavior, which has got a language of its own, like I want your left paw on this target and your right paw on this target. It's just prompts. So um, if you use a lure where the dog is nibbling away at the food in your fingers i would suggest a that's going to be very hard to remove because the dog is in the reinforcer at the time but if you use a lure as a scent target <laughs> where the lure is about a foot away from the dog's face and the dog follows the scent of the food then that's very straightforward and it's not so much faded as transferred to its final cue hmm that's interesting uh 
again, it's nothing is ever black and white, is it? There's so much nuance no. in this. No, no, no. And the more we look at it, the more we realise that we just took that at face value. And then the more you use it, you go, oh, that's not quite the same. That's a bit different if I do it that way for that dog. Why is that different? Ah, oh, yeah, you know, and this is this is what learning is about. Yeah, and that's one of the... Uh, first of all, I, well, I'm not criticising learning because I use it all the time. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's it is, It's just an interesting... You know, reading your article and and what you were saying about um, animal trainers, so people that have to have protected contact use targeting far more than luring, of course, because mm. you can't lure a lion without putting yourself at serious danger, right? So it's interesting. Well, protected contact that means both ways. The animal's protected from the trainer, hmm. as uh-huh. in elephant training, and the trainer is protected from the animal. So targets are just cues to do certain things with certain parts of your body in certain locations. Do you think that we underutilize targeting then in, in dog training? I think a lot of people use it without knowing what they're using. Um, you know, uh, one of the f- most impressive targeting sessions that I saw was at the early expos, and this young lad was training a cheetah to stand up fully against the fencing they were on either side of the fence, opposite sides of the fencing, to a target that he held up way above his shoulder height. So this cheetah stretched up and put its paws up on this target. And then he sprayed it with a um, fly repellent, because in this area they had a lot of trouble with whatever it was that used to land on and bite the, the, the animals. And this was a very, very um, fearful animal. So somebody was videoing this from quite some way away. And then the senior trainer came up and wanted him to change something. And this cat just jumped off the fence and hissed and ran straight back into, you know, and then he realized how carefully and considerately he had just done everything so beautifully that was in time with this animal. And it was the most impressive pieces of training I saw. It really was impressive. You know, working with something that was so fearful to be able to have it trust him enough to be standing up completely blind to what was happening and being sprayed. If you ever had cats, <laughs> imagine trying to spray them with an aerosol and trusting you that much. Stranger walked in, the cat was out of there straight away. Yeah, relationship and, and reinforcement history makes such a difference, doesn't it? Mm. I remember one case um, I ended up using a target stick with because um didn't want to come near me, so luring wasn't an option. But, of course, telescopic target stick, and we could uh, do stuff from a distance and move the dog around and... Um, and that worked really, really well. So it's a case yeah. of adapting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people are fearful of using food around the dogs. You know, if they've had a chomp on the hands once, every time they now approach the dog to give it a treat, as soon as they see that face opening and coming towards them, they will pull back. And it's the very action of pulling back as you're going to give a treat that causes these young puppies to lunge forward because they see their food going. So this is why we use this measuring cup on a stick, you know, because it does teach people about... It's just food in a target. The dog can focus on it, move with it, go here, go there. And your hands don't come into the picture. And then you don't have to fade hands. So do you... Difficult, because they're always on the end of your arm. Yeah. Do you fade uh, the food out of the target stick? No. How come? Well, I don't need to, because I will teach... I will change... The, one of the blessings of targeting is changing it to the next target. So you might teach your dog to go to bed in the kitchen, in their bed. And then you'll take that piece of bedding and put it in the back of the car and the dog will go to bed in the back of the car. Mm. Once it's learnt it in that location, you don't need the piece of bedding. So you don't fade the bedding, you just change it for the next thing along in line. Uh, I'm I'm lost a little bit here, Kay. So you don't have food on the bedding in the the beginning? 
No, no, no. So if, it doesn't matter how you shaped it. You could have taught the dog to go to bed. The bed is a target that the dog lies down on okay. and sleeps. Yep. So, or in your crate. Yes. Um, these are target behaviors where the whole of the dog's body lays flat on that particular surface. To teach it, you might well teach it in the kitchen. You might teach it by luring. You might teach it by shaping. You might teach it by molding. All sorts of ways you can teach it, but it is a target behavior, not a goal behavior. <laughs> this is where it gets messy because the scientists will refer to the target behavior being the behavior that you're trying to teach. Okay. Whereas we're using the target behavior as a type of prompt to cause the behavior to happen. So the bed is a target now, I could take that bed and put it in a crate, and the dog would learn how to go in the crate. But the bed doesn't have to stay in the crate once the reinforcements occurred in the crate. So that target was just used to transfer a specific behavior, which is lying down, to a new place. Okay, so you wouldn't refer to that as, as fading out then? Well, no, because you're just transferring it. You're just transferring Q? Yeah, you're just changing the Q but for But don't it. those two things happen kind of simultaneously? But why don't focus on the thing that's going, focus on the thing that's starting. Okay. So if you think about, oh my God, I've got to fade this out, I'll probably bring that target in maybe four or five times over the next 10 years. Hmm, interesting. So it's never faded, it's always there. It's just not now no longer associated with this particular situation. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's just um, uh, the way I've always thought about it, both things are happening at the same time. You know, you're transferring the cues but you're also fading out the bed that you originally began with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you, um, but when you're training a target, you think about where it's going in the future, not about how am I going to manage without it. So the target may be faded, but something else replaces it. You know, when you say, oh, we're going to f just talking about fading on its own can imply that nothing replaces it. No, it's, it's targeting is such an easy way to transfer a behavior that's easier to teach in one situation to a different situation where it's harder to teach. So one of the other things that I wanted to talk about as well is uh, fading in, which is something yep. that a lot of people don't really think about. We're quite content for the dog to make mistake after mistake after mistake by as long as the dog's kind of progressing um, or is still kind of in the game. So how much, well, maybe we should talk about fading in first for people that don't know what we mean. So fading in is, um, and this is not new, this goes back 50 years, isn't it, without looking it up directly, I think early 60s, where um, Terrace was looking at this, um, the two options of learning to do something and then learning to not do something, and the conditions under which the pigeon had to learn not to do it were extreme. So it was either correct or it wasn't correct, it was this black or it was white. Whereas fading in, the technique he used to fade in meant that the animal was right, 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 right. Oh, my goodness, black's over there. Never mind. Right, 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 right. And black was crept in on such a low basis that it hardly uh, disrupted the behavior at all. So then the pigeon was able to discriminate between when it was black and when it was white. So if I've got a dog, young collie, that's um, <laughs> the worst one I had was a helicopter chaser. That was a bit of a nuisance. Um, so if I have to get this young dog familiar with helicopters, I won't say, oh, look, no helicopters. You can do your work here. Oh, my God, there's a helicopter. Now everything's going to fall apart. This is the extreme black and white being present at the same time. This is correct. This is not correct. It's exceedingly harsh. 
if I have got the dog working and the helicopter fades in in such a way that it doesn't disrupt the behavior, the behavior that I'm looking to achieve gets reinforced and the cue to go and chase a helicopter, no, it's, it's so far away, it's not worth bothering with. So the dog is making natural choices about which is most likely to be successful rather than having to make this error, find out what it shouldn't do, and then keep coming back to what it should do. And the minute we train out of error, when you're going to do something, you'd look at it and go, oh, I've got to remember what not to do. What, what have I got to not do? Which is, which is the one that's right? Which is the one that's wrong? And you'll see this builds in like a hesitation and a stuttering where the dog goes, oh, I mustn't pick up the dumbbell that way. I've got to pick it up this way. Mm. So by just fading something in, it means the impact of what is likely to cause a disruption is much, much less. Okay. All right. There's a lot to talk about here, isn't there? So <laughs> with Terence, wasn't his uh, definition of an error just that the learner, the error wasn't acknowledged. The learner didn't, uh, the, the, there is, how can I describe this? But his definition of an error was quite specific, wasn't it? It, it um, errors are usually what the trainer or the control of the reinforcers doesn't wish to happen at that time. But errors are information as to what the animal is actually seeing at that time. So if I'm asking my dog to, or you suggest a behavior that you're asking your dog to do that might be filled with error? Uh, let's say stays. Okay. So I've asked my dog to wait over there whilst I get the vomit out of the car before they jump in the back of it. <laughs> <sighs> yep. Um, okay, so you wait there for a minute. Now, I've opened the back of the car, but the dog sees the opening of the back of the car as, oh, I want to jump in the car. And it's made the error of moving after I've asked it to wait. Well, under those conditions, all I can say is that this dog has not had sufficient training to hold a position while I open and shut the back of the car. That's all it is. It's information. It's not an error. It's only an error in the sense that it's not what I want at that time, which comes back to this human arrogance that what we want is right and what the dog wants is error. Because hmm, this was all about kind of errorless learning, wasn't it? And I thought that errorless learning was essentially that the animal or the learner um, wasn't told that they had made an error. Um, there's... I mean. <laughs> It's not about whether you know that's an error or not. You're always making errors, but it's about learning to prune out what is not necessary to be successful at that time. So minor errors, minor adjustments, particularly in motor skills, not mechanical skills, motor skills, need to be made all the time. So if you're trying to catch a ball and you nearly get it, but you don't, you make an adjustment because of what just happened. But we don't say what just happened was an error. We say... I need to change what I'm doing so that this happens and not that happens. It's a discriminative choice between two things. But if somebody else says to you, no, you've got to use your left hand, not your right hand, that's wrong and that's right, your brain now has to work out at what somebody else says you should do as opposed to what you self-correct yourself. Hmm. You have to be self-correcting to be able to learn. And this is where training and teaching and learning are all about allowing a dog to teach themselves within a certain range of errors that are not sufficient to <laughs> traumatize the learning. So if that, you know, if the dog was learning to catch, okay, um, one of the things that came up in the, the class is I want to teach my dog to learn how to catch a biscuit. Okay, some dogs have the eye coordination with their mouth to be able to catch and some dogs never will. 
I think it rather comes down to whether the thrower is reliable in how they throw. So we want to teach the dogs how to catch. Well, something like popcorn or large white pieces of chicken. Great for teaching a dog how to catch. But there's going to be times when it hits them on the top of the nose. There's going to be times when the person's not very good at doing the throw and the dog has to adjust it. But this is what the learning process is. This is about trying, doing it, doing it, adjusting it, trying, 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 doing, doing it, adjusting it. So we actually shape them towards the end goal behavior of being able to catch under lots of different conditions. What you said was quite interesting about uh, as long as it's not um, sufficient to traumatize the learner, right? So because that's one interesting point. Learning, learning, yeah. You don't want the error to be paired with the success. So if all you learnt about catching was how awful you are at it, mm. that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Oh, I'm not very good at that. I can't do it. I'm not very good. Um, whereas if you say, gosh, when I first learnt this, I wasn't very good at it, but I'm good at it now. You know, so anything, all of us or your people that you're talking about as ordinary dog folk, how many people that are now not ordinary dog folk, the other lot, started as ordinary dog folk? I did. I had a cavalier. My father said, if you're keeping that, you need to take it to training class. And I went to training class. Same as every ordinary person. Hmm, yeah, it's just I wonder at what point the whole fading in process becomes um, uh, needlessly extreme. Do you know what I mean? Like, at what point are we fading in? At what point do we decide how much we have to fade things in? You know, Well, a fade in, you know, what people call a distraction is just a cue for another behavior. So if I want my dog to come towards me um, and at that time a rabbit shoots between me and the dog, that is just a cue for another behavior. At other times, I might want the dog to respond to that cue. So it's not about distractions, it's about teaching the dog what I call a cue hierarchy. So there's a dominant cue in most situations. And fading in is about the dog learning, this is the dominant cue. Those are non-significant cues. Those are non-relevant at this time. So... To me, that's what fading in is about. Under the conditions where you run towards me, a rabbit two fields away is not relevant. It's not a cue that you should respond to. This is the dominant cue. Right, because with the whole errorless thing, like there comes a the attitude of we must have z- literally zero errors. Uh, no. no, no, you can't. You can't possibly have zero errors. But you don't want errors to be associated with what is the future of that behavior. You don't want the dog to have to then select, I should do this and I can't do that, because they spend most of the time worrying about what they should not be doing as opposed to what they should be doing. So we want them to focus on, this is the way forward, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm going to achieve, not, oh, I shouldn't do that just here, I've got to do this, that, now. Which, which is right, which is wrong. So the, the package can end up being tainted by a mixture of too many errors in proportion to the amount of success. So we minimise the errors. Isn't this what we were already told right from the beginning of like books like Don't Shoot the Dog and all that kind of stuff, where it was like you need to maximise the amount of dogs being succeeding? Isn't this whole errorless kind of thing just kind of flipping that on its head and pretending that it's something new almost? Well, you know, when you learn to write at school... Did somebody just give you a piece of paper and a pen and say, go on, get at it then, and I'll tell you when you're wrong? <laughs> you know, no, you had things like, well, in my day, somebody wrote the letters on the page, uh-huh. and to begin with, you traced over the top of them. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. remember? So I was protected from making too many errors whilst I learnt my skills. And then instead of writing on the top of them, I had to write it below them. 
you know, and this mm-hmm. is how you practice how to do things. So we were error free at that stage by not having errors that required extinguishing for success to happen. So the traditional view of dog training going back 40 years, if you want a dog to stay, you eliminate the errors through punishment. Don't you dare move. Don't you look at that. Yes. And then what was left was correct. So then the whole error-free school came back in because it was a kickback against that elimination process of trying to get what was right by only you know, removing what was wrong. Hmm. A lot of training is a kickback to what was happening at that time. Yeah, it's interesting. The, that is basically exactly what uh, I the last the previous podcast to this is with Steve Mann, and he was talking about training being like a pendulum, in that mm. you know mm. things go one direction, like the school of punishment, and then they go to the other direction of of you know extremely positive people, and it's just on a constant swing. Um, but this was you know when we, we talked about doing shaping, shaping emerged because luring was was. You know, the great fashion, you lured that sit a thousand and eighty four times, sit, good sit food, sit, good sit, sit food, until the dog was, you know, his poor butt was, didn't know whether it's coming or going. And then luring emerged because of the, we can't use food, he's supposed to, because the love of it, you know, he's an Abinia dog and I can master him. And then that came out because, you know, so every trend or culture often comes out because of um, a rejection of what was happening at that time. Yeah, and I also find sometimes with shaping among dog trainers, there's almost kind of like a elitism, right? Like, oh, I sh- I shaped that behaviour rather than lured it, and somehow that's yeah, better. that's because they couldn't they couldn't lure it. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> no, luring just had a bad rap twenty years ago because it was seen as you know this is the only way to go. Oh, I'm a shaper, not a lure. We're all shapers, all learning that is. All behaviours that are shaped by the consequences are shaped, shaping behaviours. How much guidance you give in that shaping process is the critical question. So you can go from zero guidance, which is I'll sit here with a box and you've got to offer behaviours, or you can go to lure to guide, or you could use targets and prompts to guide, or you could use the environment to guide, um, asking the dog to walk by your side in a narrow alleyway is more likely to cut away the dog pushing out to away from you because the wall's there so you know shaping is all learning there's no superiority by hands-free shaping but that's what people saw at that time they saw dogs being pushed pulled around you know uh, to get what you want it was very physical it was very brutal so then the pendulum swung to i don't touch my dog i can shape my dog with just a clicker yeah but it's not very good is it what do you mean? Well, the sit, when the dog sits, it sits three different ways every time. Mm. Oh, well, I can't see daylight 100's butt, so that's fine. You know, shaping with extreme accuracy is very, very skilled. And I don't know that it would be beneficial to every dog to learn shaping. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's um, there's a kind of a purity. Well, I found that when I was in university anyway, that I always thought... You know, like you're either shaping or you're luring or you're targeting and these things can't really happen at the same time. And that was one of the the kind of realizations for me, because I remember actually trying to lure a dog into a sit and not being able to get the full behavior at, at once. 
and just being completely lost. And then someone came over yeah, and told yeah. me, well, just break it up with the luring, right? Yeah, you know, so yeah, the dog yeah. moves slightly yeah. towards the ground. Do you reward that's that? Yes. So it's kind yes. of a mixture of luring and shaping. And No, that's just breaking the behaviour down. Whether you lure it, prompt it or shape it, you break it down into the smallest elements to achieve success. Okay, so it's how does that... Dif- how Because how are we defining shaping then? Because I thought shaping was about breaking the behavior down all training is about breaking the behavior down so if i was luring i would still break it down if i was using targets i would still break it down if i was prompting through touch i would still break it down so how how would you define shaping then that shaping is all learning learning is shaping what has become jargon that again is jargon where it's become used that oh shaping means i give the dog no guidance whatsoever (laughs) and he's supposed to offer behaviors Uh Oh, great. So so I remember when I was about nine or ten, I was considered a bit geeky at art, and I was quite good at drawing things. Yeah. And we had this great art teacher who would we'd come into the art room, and you'd come to your desk, and the paper's there, and the little six trays of colours, and you had a paintbrush. Oh, yeah, you're keen to get going. And before we could start, she would read us a poem, or she'd play something um, – from the radio and then she would tell us okay so now you're going to and off you go so there was like uh our minds were suggested as to what we could actually paint at that time and i i did quite well in that so because i did so well i was moved on to big school the art teacher there <laughs> gave you absolutely no guidance whatsoever she said you could, i would like you to do something on energy <laughs> and i'm like i sat for a whole hour not having a clue not having a clue, I was 10, 9 or 10. What the hell? Do you, I didn't know what to do, so I sat there for an hour. So that's training or teaching without guidance. Yeah, it's extremely hard, unless you're a 16-week-old puppy that just thinks everything is worth biting, chewing, and interacting with. Training without guidance. It's like coming into class. So you would turn up at class, 7.30 class. I don't mind what you do. You've got an hour. Off you go. Hmm. That's shaping. And whatever you offered... I would choose to respond whether it's something I like or not. So unguided learning, which is what I think you're trying to refer to as shaping, was just a misinterpretation because the people that put shaping out there weren't particularly good at using anything else. So, you know, when you've got a rat in a box, you're not a lurer. Do you you really think? You know, anybody lured pigeons and rats because they just weren't animal trainers. They they had to stay out of the picture because their luring skills would have affected what was actually learning. So shaping became the pure academic route to go down. And that made me better than people that have to lure. Ah, you do whatever the dog needs. You do whatever the person needs. It's like if you were working with a client and they're not very good at holding the lead, you're not going to stand and wait for them to get it right. You're going to show them how to do it. That's demonstration. That's molding. Yeah, well, yeah. And a lot of people actually... Uh, get a little bit funny about that they don't like the you know you should you should never show the people how to show people how to do it because you could demoralize them you know that kind of (laughs) school of thought (laughs) well good luck with that you know if if i want to learn how to do something the last thing i learned that was the big major step was glass blowing i can tell you i wanted people to show me how not to burn seriously burn myself and set myself a fire yes could you just show me this again so i can watch it thank you very much and then he would look at me and raise his eyebrow and he says would you like me to show you again i said yes please show me again so that i could learn 
by watching somebody else do it. Absolutely. Yes, please. I want guidance how to do it. But I don't want you to tell me how to do the creative part. Yes, the bits that are unique to me, I want to be allowed to discover for myself. You know, glass blowing goes back 3,000 years. Why would I ever want to learn how to burn myself? I want to, you know, use the information, use the actual experience of people that have gone before me, especially when it's health and safety. Imagine learning scuba diving by shaping. <laughs> I think you'd probably drown. <laughs> so this, this came up. This is not new. This came up ooh, over 10 years ago. So I did an experiment with three of my dogs, and I taught them how to do the same behavior by no guidance, which you'd call probably free shaping, i.e. I sat down, I did nothing but shape the behavior. I taught one of them by luring and one of them by targeting. Um, most people have seen the videos. It's going around a cone. You would not be able to tell from the final behavior which was which. And they each had exactly the same number of repetitions, 120. So they started from the mat, they went around the cone, they came back to the mat. And when you watch them do those behaviors, bear in mind there was only 120. They're not particularly finished. At that stage, you would not be able to tell the difference. Because I was under this illusion that shaping, oh, they'd be much better if they were shaped. So then the next question came back to me when I put that up in front of the academics, <laughs> um, which was more robust, not which was quicker. That was my first choice. Would it be quicker to go by this route, that route, or whatever, which was more robust? So those three dogs had to learn another two behaviors. So they've already got going around a cone. They had to follow a pipe along the floor and they had to stand in a tray. And what they learnt by going around a comb, which might have been targeting, they then learnt shaping, following the pipe along the floor, and then standing in the box. So each of them, you understand, each of them learnt the three behaviours a different way. So I could compare that it wasn't the dog that was affecting the choice. Yes, it was. I was looking at the methodology of how it was taught. And the answer was, no difference. <laughs> I can't tell you how much work I put into that. No difference. What? So we then put a disruptor in by the side of the behavior. A person sat by the side of them doing the behavior. All of them were excited in the first occurrence. And then once they got over that, everything was exactly the same. Okay. So there's no, there's no value to saying one is better than another. Some behaviors are easy to acquire by different teaching methods than others. Oh, that's a really great kind of debunking because you definitely have people that are kind of married to one method of teaching. And um... well, well, let me tell you Karen's answer to this. So when somebody says, oh, it's shaping so much better because dogs learn how to la da da la 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 Oh, that's so interesting. I'd really like to see the evidence. Yeah, they learn how to be creative is a very common one. Oh, that's so interesting. I really would like to see the evidence. <laughs> well, actually, on the subject of <laughs> learning to be creative, one of, them, uh, one of the kind of common games that people play with dogs to teach them to be creative is uh, the whole 100, 101 things to do with a box. Mm. It doesn't teach them to be creative. It teaches them to swap from one behavior to another, which is a bleeding nuisance because say you want the dog to now look at a cone and go around a cone. So it goes near the cone and it sniffs the cone. Now it won't sniff the cone. It goes near the cone and puts its foot on the cone. Now it won't put the foot on the cone. So now it's got to keep doing something else. But I actually wanted it to sniff the cone. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it won't go back to that because, oh, I've got to show you something new. So I've worked with these dogs that have done 101 things with the box and they're virtually impossible to keep on track towards a goal behavior. 
That's that is uh, yeah. That's a, that's a great. Uh, I've done that with hear. people as well. They've they've sat at the table opposite me. You know, we play this table game, and some seriously big names that thought that's what clicker training was. Ten objects on the table, you know, like little Lego bricks and mm-hmm. toys and all sorts of things. They pick one up. I click. Oh, give them a button. They get a reward. They then pick up another toy. No, no, the, the one you picked up is the one I wanted you to pick up. Yeah. And they'll go around the other nine, and then they won't touch that first one again because they've got to do something new. And I'm going, why? This is the one that we want you to shape on. So it's like a dog's retrieved a dumbbell. Oh, I can't retrieve a dumbbell again. Now I'll go and retrieve the sendaway marker yeah. instead. Yeah. No, 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 don't keep changing behaviors. No, 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 no. So in actual fact, the original paper that came out on the creative porpoise, it wasn't so much as creativity, it was resurgence. So when the current behavior no longer receives reinforcement, the animal will return to what has received previous reinforcement. So what you see when they call it rhododexing, offering behaviours, the animal is just going back to something that got reinforced in the past. Well, that's an, I feel like we just keep bumping into really interesting topics. The, the, resur- <laughs> the resurgence thing is, is another one of those kind of strategies that people maybe don't employ as much as maybe they should, because with resurgence, you can... It, knowing that animals tend to kind of go through that process of resurgence, you can push criteria, can't you, in maybe a more intelligent way? Well, if, you, if the first thing you've ever taught an animal to do is what it, you want it to do when it doesn't know what else to do, then that makes you a bit more serious about what you want it to do. So, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that's a, uh, yeah, brain so say I'm, I'm So say I'm <laughs> teaching a dog to, I don't um so my default behavior is what I always want to resurge when the dog does not know what to do. For my dogs, if I was doing something like freestyle, I want the dog to stand in front and look at me and go, I don't know what to do here. So if I say to it, twist, and it looks at me and goes, I haven't a clue what that is, I don't want it to go try other things. The only thing I want it to resurge is to stand there and go, no, you haven't taught me that. That's another dog. That's not my name. I've done that before now. <laughs> so then I can get a prompt from the dog going, I've screwed up because he just stood there and looked at me and went, no, nope, not right. So if you've taught a dog, if in doubt, stand at your side when you're on a lead and stand there with stillness. We call it standing with stillness. It's not freeze, not freeze like you're scared out of your brain, just standing quietly by my side. Now, the dog sees something like a hot air balloon over there in the field. What's it going to do? I'll stand by the side because I do not know what to do about a hot air balloon. (gasps) Okay. The dog sees something it's never seen before. What should it do? Stand at your side. And I want that behavior to resurge under all the conditions where the dog doesn't know what to do. And if he does something and it doesn't get reinforced, let that standing by your side resurge again. Yes. We call this the base position. So all the time the dog has good information as to what to do if no other behavior is going to get reinforced. I'm not just taking potluck on what it resurges back to. I've laid down very specific things to happen under those conditions. I mean, most people will see this in their own dogs anyway. When you say pick up a clicker or the dog thinks that training is going to begin. And maybe I think for most dogs, what resurges is just sitting. Right. Because for most dogs. That's because what it was first taught, probably. Yeah. That's so so they work. just kind of sit, and, doubts it. sit yeah. and stare at the person. Or with... That's an entire another topic. Why on earth are we so in love with sit oh well i don't teach it at all i like sit i know that there's a movement against sit but i'm actually <laughs> yep. i'm i'm a, i'm one of the f- remainers on that one <laughs> well i think it has a perfectly 
you know, what's the function of sitting for a dog? We all, every time we want to teach something, somebody says to me, oh, I want to teach my dog to do this. Why? Because I like it. I said, well, what do you think the function of this behavior is? I have no idea. Well, if you know what the function is, you're more likely to be able to pick out what is a suitable reinforcer for that behavior. So if you get a dog, you know, how many greyhounds have you trained? Greyhounds find sitting very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're not physically designed to sit unless they're going to scratch their ear or fall over or it's on the way to lying down. So this dog is immediately going to fail if the person uses sitting as a suppression of other behavior. So oh, we've got to stop the dog jumping up, so we'll make it sit. We've got to get the dog sit before it opens the door. So this dog is already set up not to succeed. So there's certain structures and certain dogs that sitting is not a choice. Sitting is something that is people-trained as opposed to what they would choose to do under those situations. So... If your dog is a sitter, by all means you sit. But if your dog is not a sitter, why should we insist that it does sit? Yeah, if your dog, like you said, if you've got a sight hound that doesn't uh, naturally want to sit, then you're you're almost starting at a disadvantage, aren't you? But how often is sit regarded as a solution? Very often. Oh, if your dog won't sit, when if you Uh uh, teach your dog to sit, then you won't have a problem with aggression. Teach your dog to sit, then you won't have a problem with it running away. Uh Teach your dog to sit, then you won't have a problem with it jumping up. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, this is just differential reinforcement, isn't it? It's just that people tend to come back to sit. <gasps> so I think we'll call this talk Bumping Around Topics. <laughs> and it's pinball, pinball bumping around topics. Sometimes they go down the bloody hole and sometimes we fire them straight back up the machine again. Well, this is... Uh, yeah. Differential reinforcement. Ooh! So what do you understand that to be? Rewarding something different to the behavior that is going on and your evidence for that being successful is well my evidence would be anecdotally I, i've used differential reinforcement with hundreds of dogs at this point <laughs> so anytime you reinforce a behavior why don't you just use reinforcement would you you mean like so- throw so, no, why, why are you referring to it as differential reinforcers? So are, what are the two behaviours you're differentiating between? Well, let's use the example that you used about dogs jumping up. Yep. So if, if we were to do the kind of classic method at this point of reward, uh, rewarding the dog for sitting okay. when greeting someone. What's the differential, though? What, what reinforce are you offering for jumping up? Uh, let's say food. No, no. You're, you're using a term differential reinforcement. But diff- you're saying differential this- to me represents the behavior. It's a different behavior. It's not the reinforcement that's different. It's the behavior that's different. Okay, so you're reinforcing the desired behavior. Right. Which is parking its butt on the floor. Uh-huh. Yeah. What reinforcer was in place when it jumped up? Uh, probably attention. What was the function of jumping up? Well, let's just... Obviously, we're talking about an imaginary dog here, but let's go with no, attention. No, well, yeah. Okay, what if I said it was approval-seeking? Okay, what do, you, what do you mean by approval-seeking? Well, so say a dog's jumping up at that moment in time. So if a child or a dog is doing a behavior because it's seeking attention, don't you think the reward at that moment would be attention? Well, you could use attention as a okay. reward if you wanted to. Okay, but by asking it to sit, you're not supplying the need of that dog at that time. Jumping up is often because the dog is being ignored. 
Yes, people are greeting, people are saying hello, kissy, kissy, huggy, huggy, doing this, doing that, coming home, I've been alone all this time. Oh, the dog is aroused and excited and excited. Sit. No, the dog is aroused and excited. Sit, sit for a treat, sit for a treat. Mm-hmm. This is like um, your father coming home from work and he wants, he wants his gin or his scotch or whatever. Oh, I don't know, give the kids a video game. I don't want to give them any attention. We're missing, we're missing that... To me, we're missing, we're not doing the dog a service by finding out what are the dog's needs at this time. We're looking at supplying what does the person want at this time, often at a cost of the dog. And if a dog is jumping up and repeatedly jumping Mm up, it's just asking, please just give me three seconds of attention. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen you for eight freaking hours. Mm -hmm. And you want me to sit? (laughs) Really? Really? No, I can't sit. I can't possibly sit. I'm far too excited to sit. You with me? It's just so, to me, counterintuitive to ask a dog to sit under those conditions. Yes, you can ask it to happen, but I assure you the natural instinctive behavior, which is needing attention, uh-huh. will keep resurging on you a lot. Okay, so let's, let's use... So if this dog is jumping up and that's the natural behavior, well, we can't allow that to continue. So if, if, you're, if, you, okay. if the behavior that you're using instead is just a, a just a standard standing greeting where well, you're still reinforcing a different behavior no no i'm supplying the need at that time the jumping up is just an outcome because i'm taller than the dog mm-hmm. i mean i have an inveterate jumper up at the moment and it likes to ping off my head it's, it's a bit <laughs> fast so i know when she's aroused I have to put my hand on her back uh-huh. and i have to take myself down to her uh-huh. so she gets the attention she needs but that attention is not palmed off with a treat. Do you understand that? That sit and treat is a suppression. It's not supplying what the dog needs at that time. It's supplying what is convenient to us at that time. What is the downside of of using alternative reinforcement? The downside is you still haven't addressed the dog's needs. And what's the fallout of that in a situation where the dog is sitting? Okay, so say... Um, what would happen in a situation if you were in a learning, uh, say you're in a class of, I don't know, 20 odd people, and every time the teacher asks us a question, they ignore you. What's the downside of that? In that situation, I'm not getting alternative reinforcement, though. That's an well, extinction, some... right? You, that, I would get an extinction burst, probably. No, say I gave you, um, I could give you a treat, but I let somebody else answer the question. Right. So if the, if, if the reinforcement of the treat was more reinforcing than having my question answered... You'd be okay, but you wouldn't learn a lot. <laughs> if it's about I would learn to attention, to ask questions, though, wouldn't I? Not if you're you're never allowed to actually supply the answers. Are you with me? It, it suppresses the behaviour at that time. We're not addressing what it is. Sure, dogs can learn how to sit, so I can put them on a lead mm-hmm. and collar. But they could just as easily stand still. Um, when you've got visitors that are ignoring the dog those are exactly the situations where the jumping up is more likely to occur um so suppressing that behavior temporarily could be a good solution because your visitor is on a pair of crutches or is Mm -hmm. too elderly to have a 60 pound dog hit them in the chest sure they can back off they can go somewhere else but we're still not addressing the needs of the dog of when the person comes home because the dog is absent for eight hours and the dog jumps up to say hello get off me you've got to sit because i'm not going to say hello until you've sat okay 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 i'll sit i'll sit i'll sit i'll sit we're still missing i'm pleased to see you i'll put the shopping down forget the shopping for a minute three seconds of being pleased and focusing on the dog would replace a hundred treats 
because it meets the function behind what is driving the jumping up. Hmm, I'm not... Uh, I don't know. I think it's going to take a lot for you to convince me on this one. So for exa- We'll have to do an experiment. <laughs> so, for example, you know, I've got a Labrador, right? Yep. Now, he might be very keen to greet me, but I think he would be much more keen to have a piece of sausage. Well, that's your Labrador for you. Right. I could, I could really okay I won't say more the Labrador <laughs> lives for its stomach yeah that just tells me that what does that tell you what's the evidence there so it tells me that, that sausage is more reinforcing than me greeting the dog yeah live with that for a while <laughs> what do you mean live with that for a while your dog rates sausage higher than you so if I come in with sausage is your dog going to greet you with sausage or me with sausage I think it's going to greet whoever's got sausage well, exactly. Right. But dogs are dogs. Like, I'm not... No, I'm not, excuse me. I'm, no, not no, in, no. I'm not tied into... No, the... left with Border Collies. Border Collies do it for the work. They right. give a shit. <laughs> you, know, oh, you know, the whole point of Border Collie, they have no loyalty whatsoever except to the job. So if you pick up a ball, I'll go with you. Yep, I'll go with you because you've got a ball. You've got a sausage? Nah, I'll do the ball. But I tell you, the, the, out of all the dogs I've ever lived with, that Gordon Setter does it for me. Oh, I don't want a sausage. I just want you. Yes, I know you do. But right at this moment, I want to sit down and have my tea. Yes, but I love you. Mm. Well, you go over there and have something to eat. No, I love you. I have to sit on your head at this moment in time. <gasps> okay, sit on my head. Be done. Love you. Now I'm going to have a sausage. <laughs> I do understand. I, no, I do understand what you mean about, you know, um, uh, recognizing the function of the behavior and taking mm. that into account in, in how you uh, go forward with the strategy. But I think sometimes, from my perspective, I think sometimes it becomes, uh, I don't sign up when, you know, you see these things where it's like you should never teach your dog to sit. Or you should, like, it just seems like a, a extreme reaction to me, a, an extreme going in the opposite direction. No, it's just, a, again, it's on these kickbacks to sit being the answer to everything. Right. Sure. I, I'm quite happy to train dogs to sit. But sit being the answer to everything, to me, is far too extreme and far too recipe-based, carte blanche. And our culture has a perception that a sitting dog is an obedient dog. Because if I'm out in the middle of town with a dog, somebody wants to come and say hello, what do they ask it to do, first of all? Sit. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, but it doesn't have to sit to say hello. So that's a cultural thing as Uh well, that people think, oh, well, he's only going to be beaten if he sits. Right. But that comes out of archaic training mm. oh archaic no i've seen training. that i i understand what you mean and i think that that's a more moderate position that we can uh have sit as the answer to everything um but also it doesn't mean that that sit is inherently evil like the, i know what you mean because I, you see that in dog owners right like you see them in class and they're telling their dog to sit and they're pushing its bum down for no reason that you can discern yeah yeah, yeah. you know and if you're going to have a good citizen's test it should be that if i'm carrying a cup of coffee that if at that moment in time the dog jumped up would harm the dog i should be able to have a cue which keeps the dog safe now i personally teach probably you'd regard it as a type of hand that says stay now i teach that by putting my palm of my hand towards my dog and chucking a treat towards it palm of hand chuck a treat palm of hand chuck a treat so when herself that likes to greet me at eye level sees that palm of hand she'll start looking around on the floor now that keeps her safe it stops her jumping up but she doesn't have to sit because i'm going to be walking along with a cup of coffee Mm. or the tray and she's come cracking up underneath um what was i carrying something for the garden she thought oh that looks good she started to jump hit her head right on the bottom of this plant pot 
wasn't good. <laughs> Didn't stop her jumping up, mind you. But under those conditions, sitting wasn't appropriate. You with me? I was walking along. And if we teach the dogs that sitting is a stationary thing that happens when people are standing still, they haven't learned how to not jump up when you're walking along carrying something, which is probably a more practical life skill than sitting at a door. Right. Walking yeah, yeah, towards sure. the door, not jumping on it. It seems to me that you're talking about what uh, we might call, like, dro right like we will reward anything except the behavior that except the jumping up i'm sorry dro what's dro differential reinforcement (laughs) of other behaviors no no that's not what i'm talking about okay i'm teaching no 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 that's another topic we can bowl around but the less specific you are as to what you're reinforcing the less likely the animal is to remember it Hmm. how do you feel about well first of all okay we're going over an hour so if you need to go, then... They'll be gone by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, most of these things, this is why we, we started doing the table game, you know, where we sit down and do training together. If I sat you down and put 10 objects on the table and we say narrow that down to five of your favourites and then I reward for all of the things except for the little red ball. Okay, so you're touching the little car, you're mm-hmm. touching the little toy soldier, you're touching the yellow orange, you know, you're touching these things. By the time you've been clicked 12 times for this anything but the red ball, you will sit back and go, I have no idea what she wants. How do you feel yes, about yeah. teaching dogs no? Or teaching dogs like, um, uh, like leave it is a classic example, right? Like... Are we teaching the dog to do something else, like sit and look at yeah, us? Yeah. Or are we going to teach the dog, look, you do anything, but just don't grab this? Well, they're different things. So if, if the leave it, again, it's just a no. It doesn't tell the dog what to do. Yes, yeah, so I, you know, when people come, you know, when they come to class... The first thing, uh, how can I help you? We, Because the barn was a long way away from catchment areas, people would come from 10 till 3. So that's I've got them for four hours. How can I help you? We've got coffee. We've got people sitting down. The dogs are out there waiting in the car. Oh, I'd like to stop my dog. Next person wants to stop their dog, and everybody wants to stop their dog. And I said, okay, let's go around again and tell me what you'd like. Not what you don't want. Tell me what you'd like. Um, well, my husband says <laughs> my dog shouldn't jump up. I said, but do you mind your dog jumping up? No, I think he's just super, you know. So by turning it around to what you want, not what you don't want, it changes the mindset. Mm. So I want my dog, if it looks at sheep and I say, leave it, it'll come back to me. And I said, well, why don't you just say, come back to me? Oh. Mm. You know I mean? So this, this sort of catch all, leave it and no is still perpetuating the punishment-based thinking. I Take understand. away what you don't want. I understand. So if the yeah. dog's going to eat something, like we, we used to have the go around the room practice, you're walking around, and I'd put down a piece of um, bubble wrap, mm. and written in the bubble wrap was the word vomit. Mm. So people would let the dogs go up and sniff, because I put bits of treats in there as well. And then as they read the word vomit, they'd go, leave it! <laughs> and I said, okay, round again. And next time they came around, I said, tell the dog what you would like it to do, not what you don't mm. want it to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, Walk with me. Good. Treat. Walk with me. Yes. Treat. You know, treat, 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 treat. So it's about changing the mindset. And when we keep teaching people, leave it and no, even if you put food afterwards, you're not changing the mindset. Yeah. So I think that 
Yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying with that. And I think that when we think about teaching dogs not to do something, we're, instantly we're thinking of all of those examples of people using punishment to do it. But of course, it is possible to teach dogs not to do something in a perfectly friendly and positive way. So I'm wondering so if you... So the behaviour, leave it. So it, in, it, well, it depends on how you've done it, right? So if you're training a dog to... Uh, if you're training the dog in use in the way you said, where we teach the dog a specific task, when I say the word "leave it," like look at me or sit or whatever it is, okay. Or if you teach it using uh, DRO, if you te- teaching if you te- reward the opposite. We reward sorry, reward anything other than grabbing it. So it depends no, on the be, approach we go about it. Well, you'll be on a. The dog will stop listening to your information because there's nothing specific they learn under those conditions. If you want the dog to sit when something happens, then ask it to sit. If you want the dog to walk backwards when something happens, then you'd Mm -hmm. say, walk backwards or walk by me, look at me, face me, turn this way. So it's about looking at what you can reward because the dog has responded to the cue. But if you're at the back end of, you know, one of the things is teaching loose lead walking. You click for a loose lead and then I go, what behavior is that? Well, anything but not pulling. Mm. Now, what starts to happen, and borrow the next client's dog that needs loose lead walking, and what you'll find is the dog stops listening to what is getting clicked because there's nothing consistently getting clicked. Yeah, do you know There's that? nothing consistent that you're learning. It's like sitting in front of a piano. Uh-huh. I don't mind what you do. Just make a noise. Yeah. So, okay, so what you're saying is it's because it's less clear to the dog what's being reinforced – it just becomes messy, essentially. You can't remember it. You yeah. can't remember it, yeah. And that's not, that actually resonates with me because um, when I do loose lead walking, as you said, I tend to reinforce the dog for being by my side. And? Um, and? And sometimes for eye contact, although I, I'm a little bit hesitant on that because I don't want the dog just staring at me all the time. But the reason I do that as opposed to, as you said, the clips, the the lead is just loose. Is because I find that it's a more definite behaviour for the dog. And Absolutely. even if even if I don't really care that the dog is right by my side, I find there is an advantage in me telling the t- or training the dog to be there because it's more definite. Yep. Yep. So what you're trying to do is teach the dog how to adapt its gait to be able to stay level with you, and the outcome is that lead is loose. But yeah. you don't click for a loose lead. Uh-huh. But you go back 20 years and, yes, as long as you click for a loose lead mm. and you'd look at these videos and this dog was getting clicked for 17 different things. Mm. Yes, it's, the lead was loose because it watched a squirrel. The lead was loose because it was trying to have a shit. The lid <laughs> was loose because it was taking the scent in. And the, are you with me? There was like such a variety of stuff. And when this woman was clicking, the dog wasn't even turning to take the reinforcer. So the click was not having any significant effect. It was, it was just, you know, it was just what I call vanity clicking. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I want to be see a clicker trainer. Yeah. Well, thanks for um, coming on. Uh, you have a really fascinating take on things, and uh, you definitely make us rethink a lot of the stuff that we take for granted. So I think next time we have to bump around on a video and I will sit you on the other side of the table and I will try out all these techniques and you can experience what it's like. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, so where can um, people find out more about you and the courses you run and all that kind of stuff? So our website is learningaboutdogs.com, which I thought was a wonderful name. Gosh, what we would, 
What we threw around before we got to learningaboutdogs.com was embarrassing. <laughs> Canine <laughs> Education Trust, you know, some of the truly bad names, but this was early days. This is nearly 20 years ago. So learningaboutdogs.com and pretty much everything should be explanatory there. But the yeah, we've got some cool stuff on there now. Yeah, I, well, like I said, I checked it out earlier. And uh, yeah, I love, I love the fact that you write articles as well because you have... Uh, I can't tell you how much I hate writing. Well, you're doing a lot of good, because I love your take on things. It is quite unique. You know, there are, I think yes. what you have is you have a very... You, ha- you apply a lot of logic to things where a lot of people are just taken in by the, you know, the terms and the buzzwords and, mm-hmm. and the language. I was lucky that my father was... Um, you know, I remember when I was about seven coming home from school and I asked him why the sunset was pink. Bear in mind, he was an accountant. And that weekend, we spent the entire weekend in his shed with all the lights blocked out. And he got a, like a curved piece of plywood and some smoke and a prism and a light and blah, blah, blah. And we saw what happened with the light. And, I go, and my brother used to hate me for asking these questions because he would find the answer. And there was no internet. I mean, how on earth he worked out how to do that, I don't know. And then, how does electricity get down the wire? <laughs> I think I got kicked for asking those questions. But yes, I think people are often afraid of questioning what appears to be authority. Yes. You know, so when shaping and the 101 things with the box came out, I thought, ooh. But there again, I'd already done 25 years of dog training. This looked good, but I could only see that the dogs were struggling to work out what to do. Right. You know, so we don't just do it because it sounds popular. We have to look at it and think, how would this benefit this dog yeah i think that we have to be very careful about going with the crowd especially when the crowd especially when the new thing and the new buzzword seems to mm. oppose everything that we that came before it yes yes yeah 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 mm. and some of the very old stuff 1880s 1890s on sheepdog training is truly modern uh-huh, it's really? pure shaping <laughs> pure shaping uh-huh. yeah and allowing the dog's instinctive behaviors to emerge and be shaped in a certain way you know it's just Lovely to read. Lovely. Uh-huh. It went south in about the 1950s. Yeah, sure. Where punishment became a thing. Yeah, well, well, I'm going to keep you forever, Kay, if we keep going. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. And, well, you, uh, you, really you know, appreciate it. you've got a cool job because you can keep asking as many questions as you want because people will sit up at home and answer them. Well, yeah, Don't exactly. We? I get to talk to people like you and, and we definitely do more stuff. Let's future. not tell people that you're only probably 15 miles away from where I run most of my workshops, but let's not tell them that. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thanks, Kay. Lovely. Nice to speak to you. See you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. As always, if you want to grab Kay's links so you don't have to trawl the internet looking for them, then just go to www.nickbenger.com slash k-lawrence. And also, if you're on Facebook, then join us on the Facebook discussion group. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger Facebook discussion group. That's where we chat about all the podcasts and I post them when they come out. So it's a nice little kind of alert as well. So please join us over there. We've got a really cool little community going on over there. And also, whilst I'm talking to you, I have a free guide that you like, you all like and you might as well download because it's free. Uh, you'll get signed up to my emails, which again, I tend to email people when I release a new podcast or I just have something interesting to say. 
and you can just you can get that for free by going to www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide if you don't know what engagement is then you definitely need to download it engagement is about keeping dogs interested in you so that they didn't they don't always want to run off so you're not constantly having to do more and more recall training with them so you're not getting into these problems in the first place uh yeah so engagement is really uh, uh antidote to to all of those things and it's something i'm hugely passionate about so jump over to barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide and get your free download all right see you guys <laughs>